Welcome back to Beyond Bones, a series of kitchen table conversations between a doctor and her yoga teacher. Recently, Chloe and Eliza met again in Zurich. In this episode, Chloe and Eliza discuss the autonomic nervous system. Hi everyone, we're seated at a kitchen table in Zurich today. That's right. We, we were actually going to try and record this in the park earlier. Um, we're sitting on a lovely ornamental rock in the middle of a sort of algae pond but we realized there was a bit too much noise going on and so we're gonna spare you the bird song and happy children playing to introduce ourselves a little bit i'm chloe and i am a doctor i work in london and i met eliza when she was teaching me yoga i'm eliza and i'm an younger yoga teacher past few years of teaching i've been focusing on the whole physiology of a human being as opposed to the appearance of a yoga posture and this has led into a much deeper understanding of how a human body functions maintains itself and can be optimized and in this investigation it's been a pleasure to get to know chloe uh, because she brings a wonderful perspective to a traditional eastern science great today we're going to be talking about the autonomic nervous system which is hugely important for a way that we feel the way that we approach life how we deal with stress. We sort of developed some interest in this when we were working together um, on a retreat earlier this year in Mons um, in Denmark. And this was the topic we were teaching on the second day of the retreat. I might ask you, Eliza, what, what is your understanding of the autonomic nervous system from your background in yoga and teaching yoga? So we're moving between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system in our daily lives. So even if you're listening and you've never heard these words before, um, you are constantly switching between these two nervous systems. So when, for example, you have to give a presentation in the office or at work and your palms become sweaty and you can feel in your chest that your heart begins to race, maybe uh, the throat kind of clenches and tightens, there's a lot of adrenaline, then they're in what nervous system, Chloe? So there's all effects of the sympathetic nervous system. Yes. So the sympathetic nervous system is the one that in one way protects you uh, in times of danger, but in another way, it's not great if we are constantly in this nervous system. So from a yogic perspective, the practices of asana, which is posture, and pranayama, which is yogic breathing, and practices of single-pointed concentration or meditation are going to help bring you out of this nervous system. So one of the reasons that people, when they go to yoga class afterwards, may feel very sublimely relaxed and very spacious is because they've come out of the fight or flight nervous system. So this is an effect that is happening to you when you go to yoga class or if you do some self-practice, you're transitioning into your more rest and restore nervous system, which is which nervous system? The parasympathetic. Yeah. The parasympathetic nervous system is a state in which it is healthy to be in as much as possible for most of the time. But actually in, in our modern lives where we have a sort of ongoing, chronic, sort of low-level stresses, we're drinking a lot of coffee, we're perhaps um, taking nicotine, eating a lot of sugar, constantly getting stimulated from phones and other devices and just the sort of crazy and hecticness of living in modern cities. 
Um, a lot of people then end up living much of their time in a more sympathetically driven state of being. When we were talking before, you said that you, you notice in a lot of your students that often people really enjoy living in this like heightened state of, um, of sort of low-level stress um, because it sort of might make you feel more motivated, you might get more done if you have a very um, busy schedule, people feel like they, they sort of need to constantly be a little bit on edge all the time in order to fulfil all of their duties. But staying in this state for long periods of time causes a lot of problems in the body because you need the parasympathetic nervous system in order to renew your cells, in order to repair. Living with high levels of sympathetic nervous system, um, it drives um, hormones such as cortisol, which is a stress hormone to be released. And we know that over time that drives inflammation, that causes a whole host of medical problems and sort of really affect people epidemically in Western cultures. Um, a lot of them can be linked to a uh, high sympathetic drive over long periods of time. So one of the reasons why yoga is so healthy is because yoga actually is um, like a technology to allow the body to come back from the sympathetic nervous system into this more relaxed, restoring parasympathetic nervous system. In the 21st century, it's a very fast-paced lifestyle. So constantly pushing your body beyond the limit or being in a revved up state will actually bring you rewards with how modern society is set up. However, these rewards are very short-lived and actually come at an incredibly high cost, which is your health. And, you know, yoga is booming in the Western world more than ever before. And personally, I believe it's because now we are really having an epidemic of stress. We're having an epidemic of being overworked. We're having a, a state of just too much activity and very little actual rest. Um, you know, most people sleep with the telephones by the bed. It's the first thing they do as they fall asleep and it's the first thing they do as they wake up. So to be constantly bombarding all of the senses is exhausting. I don't want to sound uh, too negative about the sympathetic nervous system um, mm -hmm. because how we understand these two systems, sympathetic and the parasympathetic, is not so much that they work in opposition to each other. It's not like you can only have one switched on at one time. But actually they work complementarily together if you're in the most healthy state. So a healthy person will be able to move into the sympathetic nervous system and then will be able to move into the parasympathetic nervous system easily um, and quickly and according to the circumstances they're in. So for example, if you're going to uh, climb a mountain or run a marathon or um, give a presentation, yes, you need your heart rate to go up. You need to start having blood flow to your muscles. You need to sort of shut down some of the way that your gut is functioning and focus that energy on particular parts of your body. So we all need to have a healthily functioning sympathetic nervous system, but we need also to be able to move into the parasympathetic nervous system. And the parasympathetic nervous system is the system within which um, you'll be in if you're relaxed at home, you're around people that you love, you are not feeling that there's any threats. The parasympathetic nervous system is predominantly controlled by one nerve, which is called the vagus nerve. So we'll probably be talking a little bit about the vagus nerve, but if we talk about the vagus nerve, we're basically talking about the parasympathetic nervous system. So the vagus nerve is one of the most remarkable um, structures in the body. It comes out of the brain stem, quite low down in the brain. It's quite an evolutionarily old part of the body. It's called vagus, which means wandering in Latin, because it, it's very long um, and it has many, many branches. So it comes out of the brain stem and it travels down near your larynx, near your voice box in the neck. Um, and then it innovates the heart and it acts as the brake on the heart. So when your heart rate needs to be slowed down, that's the vagus nerve that's doing that. 
it then also connects your heart to your lungs it connects your heart to your face and your facial expressions and this is really important because we know that when someone's vagus is active you can see it in their face their face becomes what we call like pro-social so it becomes relaxed and it becomes communicative and it becomes the kind of face that other people want to interact with um, and they form better relationships and so this is another benefit of trying to train yourself to, to go into the parasympathetic nervous system as often as possible in the sympathetic nervous system the body is responding to a threat so if you're living in your sympathetic nervous system high stress you tend to make very short-term decisions and that's fine you make them quickly and you respond to things quickly but you don't have the oversight and the perspective to make longer term decisions and these sorts of decisions are best made when you're um, more predominantly in the parasympathetic nervous system as we start to talk about some of these more complicated functions you can see why it's incredibly beneficial to be able to have a healthy balance in your life between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system, that they can work in cooperation with each other. So that if you need to make a short-term decision that's responding quickly to something, you are able to do that. But if you need to make uh, a decision that is a bit more complex, that is taking different things into account, thinking over a longer time frame, then the parasympathetic nervous system is going to be your friend. So it's often better to think of these systems not as opposing systems, but as brake and an accelerator. So they're working together, like when you're driving a car, you're using both the brake and the accelerator to decide your speed. And you want your, both your brake and your accelerator to be functioning well. I suppose the point that we were making about modern life is that the accelerator becomes overused and to the point sometimes of exhaustion uh, and wearing out, and the brake is not used as much. Therefore, you have less control over the speed that you're going at, which is not safe. Yeah, that was an extended metaphor. And I would pick up this metaphor and also say, really like a yin-yang, that these two nervous systems are having, just as you and I are, a conversation with one another. So we're not trying to eliminate one of the nervous systems by any means, but it's actually to have a healthy conversation between the two. Mm. And I've just found personally through my own experience and practice of yoga that a person who is very type A can be, actually become a type B person through the practice of yoga. And this is not through consciously you know, thinking, oh, I'm going to become this kind of other person or trying to even change behaviors. It actually just happens by itself. And it is such a kind thing or a kind gift to give yourself and then by extension to give to others so to learn how to have you know a kind of short-sightedness not meant in a negative way but where you can respond spontaneously and clearly that's necessary and beautiful and then a much longer term vision where you can be expansive clear and calm so i think these are qualities that that we want to keep both of yeah the construct of yin and yang um, mm -hmm. is one that maps on the western concept of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system so the sympathetic nervous system would sort of be like your yang characteristics and the parasympathetic would be like your yin characteristics um, if that's uh, sort of something that you connect with yeah. because what i find is that when students come to me and i say you know do you have any problems I've really been making a mental note this year of what these are so that I can really assess what is actually the most beneficial thing to teach if I'm in a place just for three days for a workshop. And what I've found the answer to this is, is how to go into your more restorative nervous system. And that's the result of hearing feedback of, I was diagnosed with overused adrenal glands, uh, I have chronic insomnia, I'm always stressed out, I have a lot of uh, back pain, and everything is going too fast. Yeah, also, um, which is hugely common, digestive problems such as IBS, most typically, 
when you're in the sympathetic state, blood flow is going away from the internal organs um, and it's going to the muscles and to the heart to enable you to run away or to fight or whatever. But if you're staying in that state all day long, when is your gut going to process? When the parasympathetic kicks in, that's when the gut starts to get blood flow, it starts to become healthy, to work normally. So IBS and gut problems also are very um, closely related to having this sort of chronic stress, this chronic sympathetic stimulation. And the yogic prescription for IBS is mainly a series of twists in order to stimulate the area and literally just bring digestive fire there. And then also forward bending to stimulate the organs around the intestines. Mm -hmm. And also forward bending will have an effect on the parasympathetic nervous system. So these nervous systems, they're not sort of abstract concepts. They exist as nerves, which are sort of long electrical carrying fibers. And these have a specific location in the body. So a lot of the yoga asanas work by directly stimulating these nerves that are carrying these autonomic signals or these parasympathetic and sympathetic signals and you can use the postures to directly influence the nervous systems and the gurus that developed yoga they may not have understood exactly the anatomy in the same way that we might understand it um, in western medicine but they knew exactly what they were doing when they created these asanas so the sympathetic nervous system all of the roots of that come directly out of the spine and it comes out at each level each vertebra so every bony protrusion that you have on your back between each of those these little sympathetic nerves are coming out this is why twisting is a good way to stimulate this system um, and when you stimulate a system you're bringing blood flow there you're bringing nutrients there um, and you're allowing it to regenerate similarly when you're doing uh, say a shoulder stand, the vagus nerve sits there. What happens when you open up that area again is you get a fresh flow of blood and nutrients to that area, which is another way that the yoga directly works on the nervous system. One of the most profound things I took away from my first trips to India, after having only studied and learned Iyengar yoga in the Western world, was the supreme importance placed upon Salamba Sarvangasana shoulder stand and Shirshasana headstand. They're called the king and the queen of yoga. And their importance was stressed so far as if you can only do two poses for the rest of your life, do only these two poses and Shavasana, which is corpse pose. So the benefits of these are so numerous. And what you just mentioned in shoulder stand with the, the vagus nerve, I want to clarify two things here. One is the throat in this position should always be soft. It should never be clenched and gripped. And this is the reason that it's ideal to take three, if not four, folded blankets for this posture on top of each other and then to step them by degrees so that they can support the entire neck. And Gita Iyengar has said that in the Western world, the biggest mistake that we make in Salamba Sarvangasana is we bear too much weight on the seventh cervical. So we don't want to do this. So learning how to bear the weight of shoulder stand on the shoulders is really important for the areas around the neck, all the glandular systems and the vagus nerve to have this regeneration, which Chloe spoke about. The, the body is actually um, an amazing self-restorative thing. And if you just allow an area to get blood flow space within it, your body will do the rest intuitively in terms of resetting things that are misaligned, uh, healing areas that might be inflamed or injured in some way. Your body has got an amazing immune system uh, which will go directly to the area and is way more complex than any of us can 
possibly understand and is its own doctor and will sort it out. But you need to allow that to happen. So you need to get yourself into positions where you are getting that space in that area and you're allowing that blood flow to move into that area. So this is why in, in yoga, although some of the positions appear to be quite contorted, actually to practice them properly, you're not getting any tension or gripping in these areas. You're actually allowing space within those areas and with and therefore within other areas that are related to them. And this is why if you go to Iyengar yoga classes, you may get the quite complex instructions because it's quite a subtle thing to increase these spaces in these in these subtle sort of anatomical areas and this is what we're aiming towards but this is also why we use props to allow ourselves to get that, that space or to find those positions when otherwise our bodies would not be um, flexible enough to do it and this is also the really interesting interplay between the psychology of a human being, the emotional body of the human being, and then the physical body. Poses that appear difficult or trigger fear in someone, they are so happy, so joyful when they finally get into the pose properly. And I wish sometimes that all the students could have my eyes and see themselves throughout a class because there's a moment when they naturally are fully embodying the pose without much effort, if any effort at all. And the whole vibration in the room changes. It becomes so serene and quiet and peaceful and the struggle is gone. And this is such a beautiful moment in the class and often the students will even arrive there together, which is the art of sequencing. So another aspect of Iyengar yoga that is very important is how you sequence from one posture to the next posture. And this also goes with this dialogue of do I hit the accelerator or do I hit the brake? Insofar as when you wake up in the morning, and you're about to unroll your yoga mat. As you do that, ask yourself, how do I feel? Do you feel like you have energy? Or do you feel depleted and tired? Do you have an eight hour work day ahead of you? Or do you have a picnic in the park? And is it 100 degrees outside? <laughs> you know, or is it 30 degrees outside? How is the how is the abdomen? Did you digest your food? Have you drank anything yet? Have you eaten anything yet? All of this is not separate from the practice. This is an integral part of learning how to listen to what you need. And this is not something a teacher can tell you in a class. So you can tell the teacher, oh, I've had a stressful day, so I feel tired. That's okay, you can communicate that. But I'm assuming that People want to have a more intelligent, lifelong practice where they're exploring these things for themselves also. So in this case, I would highly, without hesitation, recommend taking these few minutes before you start practice, seeing what you need and sequencing accordingly. So if the body needs a more restorative practice, there is no gain from pushing it through a really strong practice. I would actually call that aggression. Mm -hmm. And if the body feels fantastic and it's warm out and you have lots of energy and you slept well, then go to the wall and kick up into handstand and start with a strong practice and get blood flowing through the muscles. Beautiful. But I think without this inner tuning in and also the importance of setting the intention, what's so powerful about saying a mantra, chanting a syllable, or saying a prayer, is that the mind, or the thoughts we can even say, the thought and the intention are purposeful. So when the thought and the intention are purposeful, and that then leads to a purposeful action, that is a more wakeful state of being right there, which is going to lead to being more awake in the body, more awake in the mind and more aware of what's happening with the breath. And this is something that I suppose you gain with experience of doing mm -hmm. yoga, 
but only if you start to check in with these things. So I guess the first place to start is, as Eliza was saying, when you start your practice, how do I feel? How fast am I breathing? How regular is my breathing? How fast is my heart going? Am I sweaty? Am I feeling anxious and on edge? These sorts of questions just ask yourself. And then after a particular pose or a sequence of poses, then ask yourself the same question again. Getting into the practice of just checking in with yourself. What effect did doing that asana or that series of asanas have on my, my physiological, my mental state of being? And therefore, how can I remember that and then next time I need to adjust how I am feeling because perhaps I'm feeling very sluggish and I need to get on and do things or perhaps I'm feeling very revved up and anxious and I need to calm myself down you you will sort of know by experience which postures will do what for you um, and then over time you can you can refine this process um, and this is one of the joys of practicing yoga and learning it you, you develop more tools which allow you to live your life actually much more productively successfully compassionately you know whatever your aims are you can start to move towards this by tailoring your practice um, in a way that you were talking about and how the view also changes like now for example if i'm sick I think, oh, my body's cleaning itself. I don't have such a, a view with aversion towards myself. And that is a really powerful tool to have, actually. If you cannot have aversion and preferably also not attachment to how you are in any moment, imagine how much equanimity would arrive into your life and how much peace. And these are the ultimate goals of yoga. I really think at this point, most people are aware that doing the most perfect Virabhadrasana 2, Warrior 2, is really not going to change anything in your life unless it's a more holistic practice. So yes, it might tone your muscles, and yes, you might really feel very confident with an open heart for the 30 seconds that you hold the posture. But um, so many things depend on context. And if you never take Virabhadrasana 2 into your daily life off of the yoga mat, then you're really actually doing a practice in a very limited context that needs to be contained within the walls of a yoga studio. So I encourage everyone listening to this to really take that just as food for thought. How do you take what happens on the mat into your daily life? And this is one of the joys of getting to discuss these kind of things and also do retreats like we did where we were able to have a longer dialogue with a diverse group of humans about how they relate to these practices and their daily lives. And if that conversation isn't happening, I think that you're missing or one is missing so much richness behind why we're doing all of these <laughs> shapes uh, on a mat. I suppose it should be added that you can practice yoga in a harmful way if you're not aware of the effects that it's having on you. Because what we're trying to get to is this balanced state where the different aspects of your physiology are working complementarily together. Some practices will, if you're already slightly out of balance one way, will push you further that way. Um, and then you can become injured or you may just not get benefits from it. Um, so it is really important if you're going to be starting to do your own practice that you are becoming aware of the physiological um, and mental effects of the poses um, so that you, you don't cause yourself harm or perhaps just do nothing with the time that you're investing. And when you can learn to really be present in each pose, it actually doesn't matter the result of the final pose. And this is, again, one of those really beautiful, magical moments when you can arrive there in your practice because it means that you know how to be present. You aren't striving for something. And you also aren't bringing something from the past with you into the present moment. And essentially... To philosophically break down what is happening in a posture or an asana, 
is that it is just a situation. So let's take Urdhva which is backbend. This is a complicated situation. So you're trying to literally bend your body in the opposite direction that it has bent its entire life. <laughs> and you are not only trying to bend the body completely against its habit, you are entering it blind. And that is if you drop back into a backbend. But because it's Iyengar Yoga, there's steps. So let's say that you're doing Urdhva Dhanurasana at the wall and you have a chair behind you. And then you can put your feet on the floor, pressing into the chair. And then you can reach the hands back to the wall. So you don't have to be able to do the full posture and you have a reference point for the hands to feel. But you're still entering the position blind. So again, taking asana as a situation and a metaphor. Let's say you've just touched the fingertips to the wall in Urdhva you want to give up. This is hard. You can't straighten your elbows. You feel uncertain in the legs. You feel strain in the neck because you normally don't let your head go back and completely open your throat. You can't see your feet. You can't see in front of you. You're looking at a wall behind you. You can't see your hands. You can't see your feet. In that moment, you have a choice. And if you can be present in that moment and you can simply Inhale, exhale, and not come out of the posture, you'll see the pose with fresh eyes. So this is a split second in the pose. And then rather than exiting a complex unknown situation out of fear, you can maybe straighten the elbows a millimeter more. Maybe open the throat a little more. Maybe lift the ribcage off the abdomen so that fear goes out of the body. And all of a sudden, you're okay in Urdhva-Dhanurasana. Hmm. And then you're present. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because what you're actually doing is in that moment of taking a breath in and a breath out, you're moving from the sympathetic nervous system, which is you perceive a threat and you feel fear to the parasympathetic nervous system where you feel relaxed and you have some perspective and the breath is probably the easiest and the most intuitive and effective way for someone who is beginning to experiment um, with their physiological states um, and being able to to move naturally between them the breath is the best way in. The breath is sort of the overlord of all of this. And the way that that works is for me very interesting, like physiologically. Um, do you want me to talk about that? Yes, because this is the key moment, actually. You know, it doesn't have to be a pose as complex as Urdhva Dhanurasana. There's just so much happening there. But it can be as you know, simple as Vrikshasana, tree pose, and you wobble a little bit. And then also something happens internally to you in that moment. And it's occurring whether you know the explanation behind it or not. Yeah. So I think it's valuable. Yeah. What I'm going to talk about is the heart rate. So the heart rate is um, the number of times per minute that your heart is beating. And it varies in a sort of healthy adult from between about 60 beats per minute to about 100 beats per minute um, and it can go slower and it can go faster but we would say that normally it would sit between 60 and 100 beats per minute. We know that there is a sort of second by second variation in the heart rate so these tiny variations in the heart rate and these are caused by your breathing. So essentially every time that you breathe in and take a deep breath, your heart rate increases. Every time you breathe out, your heart rate decreases. This is all mediated by the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So when you breathe in, you're stimulating your sympathetic nervous system and your heart rate goes up. 
When you breathe out, you're stimulating your parasympathetic nervous system by the vagus nerve and your heart rate goes down. This is probably one of the most simple ways to start experimenting. If you've ever had a panic attack, you know what happens is you start to breathe in more and more and more quickly and more quickly till your your lungs are actually very full with air and you find it very difficult to breathe out. And the fear that goes along with the sympathetic stimulation drives this. So the fear then starts to tell you, I, I can't breathe, I've not got enough air in the body. And then you start getting your own fears about maybe I'm going to die, maybe I'm having a heart attack. And this drives the whole thing and this turns into a panic attack where the whole sympathetic nervous system goes into overdrive. The treatment for a panic attack is simply to breathe out. <laughs> and it's very hard actually you need if you're not used to doing it you need someone to coach you to do it and I've sat with many patients and coached them to do this and sometimes you literally have to give them um, a brown paper bag which is empty so that they can see that they're blowing it up and they're blowing out I'm super curious about if it would be beneficial to do nasal breathing if someone's having a panic attack or is that not possible is that too stressful Often when you're in the midst of a panic attack, because you're in this extreme sympathetic state, you're unable to take on complex instructions. So the, the simpler the better. If, you, if you're someone who often has panic attacks and you want to work on this, it's good to practice these breathing techniques when you're not actually having a panic attack and then perhaps when you start to feel that you're getting that way, you can then start to use these techniques and they'll be helpful then. But if it's, say, the first time you've had it or you don't understand it properly or you haven't practiced the breathing, you need something very simple and visual just to get you to go. Sometimes also I get people to just go, <sighs> like a big sigh, because if you're making that noise, you're aware of the fact that the air's coming out of your lungs. Because what, what people actually think when they're having a panic attack is that they don't have any air in their lungs, when actually their lungs are completely full of air, which is why they can't take a breath in. So you have to show people that actually, <sighs> see all that air that came out into a brown paper bag, see all that air that's filling up, and then that starts to click in. But it, it's often um, helpful to support people initially with these very simple sort of things that give them visual feedback or audible feedback. Um, unless someone is more practiced in breathing techniques um, and then probably they won't be having that many panic attacks anyway. <laughs> but they do still happen to us sometimes. Um, you're, not, you're not aware of a situation and things become overwhelming. That's what is, I hear a lot of as well is that people just feel in general overwhelmed. And I think this is a result of having to take on too much all of the time. And this is a, another incredible benefit of carving out a space for oneself can literally be the corner of a living room, a bedroom, a hallway that is a space where there's not pressure to do anything and to not allow things like cell phones in this area to you know turn ringers off shut doors if possible and to really make a space without pressure um, and whether one does yoga in this space or whether one sits on a meditation cushion or whether one simply just breathes and looks out the window i think these are the daily practices that we're really losing as a society and Another simple example of that is we used to have more of a culture where we had to reach our arms up, like we had to reach for things. Now, more than ever, I see a tendency that people can't straighten their arms. Um, and this spans all ages. And this makes me quite uh, curious and also worried. And I don't think we want to lose the ability to reach our arms above our head and straighten them. I'm going to go back to the way that the breath affects the heart rate because this is also related to the reason why reaching your arms above your head affects the heart rate and therefore your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. And it's also related to the reason why inversions such as headstand or shoulder stand mm -hmm. also affect the heart rate. And it's quite simple. So you have your heart, which 
It needs to pump a certain amount of blood around the body in every minute. And the way it can increase the amount of blood that is being pumped is it can either speed up and pump less blood with each pump, or it can slow down and pump more blood with each pump. So in the sympathetic nervous system, your heart is, is speeding up and it starts to pump less and less blood with each pump. If, the, if you're in the parasympathetic nervous system, your heart slows down and you're pumping more efficiently, but you're pumping more blood with each pump. And you can actually have like the same amount of blood being pumped around the body with these sort of different combinations. What happens if the heart is given more blood back to it is it says, oh great, I've got more blood that I can pump with each pump, so my heart can slow down. So the more blood that you're getting back to your heart, the slower your heart rate can go. When you raise your arms in the air, there's big veins that lead directly from your arms right into your heart, straight into your heart. So lifting your arms above your head is going to help give you a, a sort of sudden load of blood to the heart and the heart goes, oh, I can slow down a little bit now, mediated via the vagus nerve and this connects as we were saying before, with the facial expression, with the gut, with all of the internal organs. So if you're not doing this regularly, you're missing out on an opportunity to just have those small moments every day where the parasympathetic nervous system is stimulated. Similarly, this is how the breathing affects the heart rate. When you take a breath in, your entire thoracic cavity, this is the area in your chest, your lungs, your rib cage, fills with air. The heart also lives in this thoracic cavity. So if all of the space is being taken up with air, less blood can travel through that space back to the heart. What that means is that the heart has to speed up in order to pump the same amount of blood per minute around the body. If you breathe out and then hold your breath on an out-breath, there's no resistance to the blood flowing back to the heart through the thoracic cavity. You've created space there. So this is when the heart can slow down. Um, and so this is um, sort of how the heart rate and the autonomic nervous system are affected on a minute-by-minute -minute basis by your breathing rate and also by the position you put your body in. So in the class I taught this morning, I was very transparent about what the sequence is and the way I was linking poses was going to make everyone feel. And towards the end of class, when we did a twist, then hanging upside down in the ropes, so Shirshasana in the ropes, then followed by placing the legs up the wall, the spine flat on the floor, and then followed with Shavasana, and we took 30 minutes to just do those three poses. And I never gave the instruction to close the eyes. Within three minutes into twisting, it was seated Bharadvajasana in a chair. Everyone in the room had closed their eyes, which shows that you just feel calm and safe. If you're in a moment of heightened danger, you're not gonna close your eyes. So the eyes closed, then there was no fidgeting. And I noticed this particularly once we got into rope shirshasana. Complete stillness came. I had to give the instruction, change the cross of your elbows so you hold them in the other way. No one did it on their own. No one did it too soon. And no one came out early. And then when we arrived to legs up the wall, people took their glasses off their face, you know, put them on a block next to them. And again, instantly, eyes closed, no fidgeting. They were very internally focused. And when they came up after legs up the wall, I explained how they were basically doubling the flow of blood to the heart. So if someone is worried about things like, you know, having a heart attack someday, Things like legs up the wall and allowing extra blood flow through the major arteries around the heart is like the best heart care that one can do for themselves. 
If you're someone also that is um, prone to having arrhythmias of the heart, so you, sometimes you might go into a very fast heart rate. This is quite common, it's called atrial fibrillation. Just practicing putting your legs up the wall once a day, every day, is allowing your body to learn that response and to learn how to slow the heart rate down. If you get into, into that position, your heart rate will naturally slow down because the more of your body that's above your heart, the better, because then the gravity will bring all that blood flow to the heart. The heart goes, oh great, I've got loads of blood coming to me, I don't have to pump so fast. It's very smart and it happens on a minute by minute basis, it's very responsive as well. We know a mark of health, how responsive your heart rate is. So if you're sort of a young, fit, healthy person, actually over the course of a minute, your heart rate will vary quite a lot because it's responding to all of these small movements, it's responding to your breath. As you get um, older, if you've had a life of chronic stress, etc., your heart rate variability decreases. This is because you're not training your heart, you're not keeping those, those reflexes active. It's like any other part of the body, you need to train it to keep it active and to keep it functioning and um, you know, well lubricated. Um, so just these practices of, even if you don't want to do any yoga, lying on your back with your legs up the wall for five minutes a day, will have huge positive benefits. <laughs> I said this in the it. class. I said if you before, you know, even you can even do it in your bed. Mm -hmm. If your bed is near a wall, just put your legs up the wall yeah. in the morning, in the evening, whenever you wish, and just sort of give yourself mm -hmm. these extra nutrients flowing through the heart. And this is why it's good for insomnia as well. Yes. Because when you're unable to sleep, it's often because your sympathetic nervous system is too active. You're feeling anxious, your heart's going too fast, and you're in a state where you may not recognize that you feel threat, but your body is thinking, oh, there's a threat. I can't sleep because, you know, I might need to deal with that threat. So if you, if you suffer from insomnia, what you want to do um, prior to going to bed is to move yourself into the parasympathetic, the rest and digest nervous system, where you can rest and your body will allow you to sleep. Um, and one of the most quick and effective ways to do that, firstly, is by um, slowing your breath and taking longer out breaths. And the second is to increase the blood flow to the heart by, for example, putting your legs up the wall before and bed. This is Ujjayi Pranayama. Uh, two and three, which is prolonged exhalation. Mm -hmm. And prolonged exhalation is taught first. Mm -hmm. Because before you can properly inhale or increase the heart rate, you have to know how to exhale properly first. Otherwise, the inhalation is going to be too stimulating. Mm -hmm. Because you need to be able to stay and do pranayama without becoming too excited, let's say. And I want to circle back to one other point. This is the reason that you teach children differently than adults if you teach them yoga. So a child, you can run them through 35 poses very quickly because they still have this natural response intact that when it's a restful pose, the body rests. When it's a more uh, strong pose, the heart rate beats more and it's no problem. And this is also why with children, there's also less fear, I believe. Because if a child falls over in a pose, generally they laugh. Whereas it becomes a very serious thing when one is older. And I just encourage practitioners and I remind myself to just be playful in the practice also. Like, can do this joyfully. To be a little bit more like a child in the mind and the body is extremely healthy. Because then you're just being naturally responsive to whatever is arising and whatever is happening as opposed to really trying to control and monitor every particular thing happening. So it's like when you try to strike the center of a gong, it's this balance between being too tight and too loose and really learning how to exactly strike that balance within your yoga practice which will then lead to within your daily life. And then, you know, that profundity will carry on in inner layers within you. Mm. These are really sort of transferable skills because 
If you start to practice your yoga in this way so that you're becoming aware of the state your body is in, essentially how you feel, and you're aware of how you can alter how you feel through um, your breathing, the position of your body. Actually, when it comes to day-to-day life um, and you have stresses, strong emotions, various different things that arise, you can use the same principles. Emotions are very highly related to the autonomic nervous system. So a particular emotion that we feel, if you break it down to the basic emotions, can actually be mapped onto a combination of your heart rate, your breathing rate, regularity of your breathing rate. And so once we understand how to move these things within us and respond to these things within us, it makes it a lot easier to manage our emotions, it makes it a lot easier to manage our stress. If you are able to do this over time, this will prevent you from getting to that state of burnout, that state of being overwhelmed, that state of feeling that you can't connect with others around you, which ultimately leads to depression and other quite severe mental health problems. I guess it's a sort of a prophylactic for the pressures that we all have to live under in the world around us and why I think yoga is great. One of the genius aspects of yoga is that you don't have to think about what is happening to you. You do a few things correctly and so much is then done for you. So I'm sure you have not gone to a yoga class and the teacher has said, you need to get out of your fight and flight response in this posture right now, you know, and go into your rest and restore nervous system. So it's not functioning like this. What's happening on a deeper level inside of you when you do a practice of postures, breathing, more single pointed concentration, is that the entire physiology and actual cellular makeup of your body is being reprogrammed. And it's being reprogrammed to experience itself in a different way. 